If you see this in a professional bio, then run. Imposter syndrome is this phenomenon that has been sweeping the world since the 1970s. And it was a term coined by psychologists that particularly targeted women, especially women in the workplace. You see this everywhere. Millions of people are reading articles, watching YouTube videos, and liking TikToks or Instagrams or Facebook posts to learn more about imposter syndrome and figure out ways to cope with it. But here's the thing. What is imposter syndrome in the first place? Hi, my name is Del Tom. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and host of the Social Work Journal podcast. If you're looking for an effective, sustainable plan to overcome imposter syndrome, then stick around until the end of this podcast. Or if you're watching on YouTube, this YouTube channel episode. First things first, if you're truly going to overcome imposter syndrome, you need to accept that it's not a diagnosis, nor is it a condition. And I think that's what's so confusing about it is because it's titled imposter syndrome. So you think that there's some actual clinical or medical diagnosis behind it, and there's not. If we look at what imposter syndrome truly is, it's purely psychosomatic. And you've heard me use that phrase before if you listen to my podcast. But psychosomatic is a physical illness or other condition caused or aggravated by a mental factor such as an internal conflict or stress. So that tells you right there, there's nothing medical, there's nothing clinical about imposter syndrome. Now that we know what psychosomatic means, we can safely conclude that there's only one justifiable cure for psychosomatic symptoms, and that's the placebo. So for those of you who have never heard of the placebo pill, especially if you were born in the 21st century, sorry, I was born in the 20th century. It was originally invented in the late 18th century. Now, who invented it? Meh, there's some arguments about that. But if you go to PubMed.gov or the NIH website, the National Library of Medicine, National Center for Biotechnology Information, then you'll be able to learn more about the history of the placebo. And also, if you tune into my podcast or if you want to check my podcast out, I will be posting links to articles and journals in the description per each episode so you can easily find what you're looking for there. Now, there are two types of placebo pills. And some of you are like, I thought we were talking about imposter syndrome. But if we're going to talk about the cure and what imposter syndrome actually looks like, we got to get into this placebo pill. Let's get into the history, the research, the facts. The first thing is, is that or the first type of placebo pill is the sugar pill. And we know sugar pills really, they don't do anything, but its sole purpose per NIH is to satisfy the patient's mind without producing any direct or remedial effect. That's why people get into these placebo pills. So hence, it treats the psychosomatic symptoms. It doesn't actually treat anything physical, medical. There's nothing clinical going on there, right? Now, if you find value in this information, hit the like button, subscribe, and keep watching as I continue to analogize between the two types of placebo pills and treatment for imposter syndrome. Now, 
a non-clinically licensed professional, no shade, such as a life coach or a motivational speaker may tell you that they can share secrets to overcome imposter syndrome. Some of them may even solicit your buy-in by sharing their own personal story about imposter syndrome. But this is nothing more or less than a sugar pill placebo. Now, why is that? If you believe that you have the syndrome and you believe that the syndrome is greatly impacting your daily functioning, you're more than likely going to start engaging in some ways that are consistent with imposter syndrome, especially if you're looking it up because we know we can find everything on Google. Now, the problem with these symptoms or the criteria of imposter syndrome is that it's quite vague. So let's have a look. I just kind of Googled and picked up the first thing I found on Google about the symptoms of imposter syndrome. Extreme lack of self-confidence, feelings of inadequacy, constant comparison to other people, anxiety, self-doubt, distrust in one's own intuition and capabilities, negative self-talk, dwelling on the past, irrational fears of the future. And then they say in professional settings, maybe taking on extra work to make sure you're doing it all or shrugging off accolades. Now let's break this down here. First, let's get into the first section where we talk about self-doubt, negative self-talk, dwelling on the past. I don't think there's anyone who's tuning in who has not had self-doubt or has not engaged in negative self-talk. That does not mean that you have some kind of syndrome. And I don't think we need to label it. I think we need to figure out, well, why are we engaging in self-doubt? Why are we engaging in negative self-talk? Because we know that those are cognitive distortions. We do it because we are trying to find meaning, purpose, and cope with these unfortunate things that happen to us. It could be stress. It could be loss. It could be grief. It could be, you know, having stressors that have to do with interpersonal conflicts or financial conflicts, which we talked about in the previous episode for this season, stress. So if you haven't checked it out, check it out on the podcast. But anyhow, all these things could be reasons why we're engaging in these cognitive distortions and engaging in negative self-talk and self-doubt. But really what we're trying to do is cope and we don't have the tools to cope in an adaptive way, okay? And then if you look at shrugging off the accolades, isn't that what we call minimizing? That's a cognitive distortion. I did a whole episode on cognitive distortions. I think it might have been in season one or season two. But minimizing or discounting the positive is a part of a cognitive distortion. And we do it so that when bad things happen to us, we can engage in the same minimizing as we do when we discount the positive. It's just a way of trying to strategically deal with something that is causing us much distress. And over time, we learn that we're actually causing ourselves more stress, more self-doubt, more negative feelings. Now, taking on extra work to make sure that you're doing it all, you might just be over-consuming yourself with work to distract yourself from the things that are most important that really matter. Does that mean that you have imposter syndrome? I don't think so. We don't have to try to label things to find meaning in them. Most things are meaningless until we assign meaning to them. And I can guarantee you by telling yourself that you have imposter syndrome, you're not feeling any better about any of these symptoms that you might be having, especially if you're having feelings of inadequacy. 
I mean, if I thought I was inadequate about something because I had some sort of syndrome, that doesn't make me feel any better. It makes me feel much worse. Now let's get into the second placebo pill because I want to tell you how that works. And when we get into the history of that second placebo pill, it'll make a lot of things make a lot more sense. So the second placebo pill is not that of which the patient or client thinks that they're being treated. So you're being treated for something. So there is a medicinal effect. So if I go in to the doctor or if I go into my therapist who is clinically licensed to diagnose and refer me to a psychiatrist, maybe I sit down with a psychiatrist and they look at the diagnosis that this therapist, this licensed clinical therapist has prescribed, and it says, I have anxiety or depression. Maybe the psychiatrist might say, oh yeah, I understand. You feel like you have imposter syndrome. I got something perfect for you. Maybe we might put you on a little Lexapro, okay? And I've had a lot of success with clients who've had imposter syndrome take Lexapro and they feel much better. Now, whether or not you're psychiatrist is going to entertain engaging in that kind of rhetoric to say the least. I'm sorry. I'm trying not to be, I'm, I'm really not trying to be judgmental, but I'm, this is a matter of the mind and not a matter of medical factual things that are going on with you. So I'm really trying to stress to you guys that this imposter syndrome is not real. Anyhow, they might say, oh, I'm going to prescribe you this because I've seen some success with people who had similar symptoms, such as the ones that you're describing on this medication. You're not actually being treated for imposter syndrome, especially if you're getting Lexapro. Lexapro is awesome because it tackles on anxiety and depression. So usually people who are cyclic between depression and anxiety, Lexapro is really great because it can help both of those symptoms. I've had a lot of students and clients that were prescribed that, especially after I consulted with maybe their psychiatrist and I said, yeah, I have known persistent depression in this person, but I also have known some of these compulsions and some of the these anxious expressions. And I'm really concerned about their anxiety. And I give the psychiatrist some data and they're like, yeah, I'm probably going to put them on Lexapro. So anyhow, just a little fun fact. Now, as a licensed clinician, when I hear someone say they have imposter syndrome, I'm looking to explore what led them to this conclusion. I'm observing their bodily emotional reactions. I'm asking them open-ended questions. I'm making those thought-provoking statements because what what I really want to do is I really want to narrow down what is it? Is it depression? Is it anxiety? Is it both? Is it situational? Because like I said, all of us experience depression. All of us experience anxiety at some point in our life. But if we don't meet the criteria for the disorder, it's not a disorder. And also as professionals, we tend to shy away from diagnosing people with anxiety, even if it's generalized anxiety or depression or some type of depressive disorder, if it's situational, such as substance use, medication induced, seasonal pattern. And there's even things like premenstrual dysphoric disorder where it causes rapid mood swings. And obviously that's situational because it has to do with 
when you're around the time of your period. So I don't want to discount that sometimes you can be diagnosed with a form of depression or anxiety disorder and it could be situational. But typically if it's outside of those caveats that we just discussed, I personally as a licensed clinical social worker in my private practice do not diagnose people with anxiety or depression if I know it's situational and it's outside of those caveats. Anyhow, what I'm trying to get into is their biopsychosocial history because I want to look at the person as a whole. I want to look at the person and environment. What are some of the stressors that could be impacting their ability to sleep? What could be impacting their habits? What could be impacting their ability to eat well? Are they eating well? Are they on any medications? Do they have any history of diagnosis or do they have anyone in their family that has a history of mental illness? These are all things that I want to take into factors. What are their coping skills? How do they respond to me if I do make those provocative statements? Because sometimes that tells me also how they respond to stress. You know, what are their relationships like? Do they have a support system? How are they doing in their job or how are they doing in school? These are all things that impact a person's ability to function in their day-to-day life. And that has nothing to do with imposter syndrome because there are factors outside of us that will always be out of our control. And with us knowing that, it's not what happens to us. It's how we respond to those things happening. So one thing that I think is very important, especially when we look at the social aspect, is people who you exchange information with and the quality of those exchanges, whether they're negative or positive, greatly impact your mindset. Because the thing is, is every day when we interact with others and when we interact with the world and our environment, our brains are taking in information and we assess what we feel our life or how we feel our life is unfolding based off of that information that we consistently receive. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're like myself, an adventurous person, and you have close family and friends that are less adventurous, more doubtful, and You continue to be your adventurous self, but you do so with worry, fear, and doubt and anxiety because these people that you are surrounded by, they instill some of that doubtfulness. They instill some of that fear. They instill some of that worry. That's going to lead to stress. And that stress is going to lead to some of those symptoms, quote unquote, that look like this imposter syndrome. And you being a person who's trying to be proactive and look for answers, you're pulling from this whole imposter syndrome saying, aha, I know what it is. I know what's bothering me. I know what's affecting me. But the fact of the matter is, is, I'm sorry, but that's not what it is. You're just pulling from the information that you're receiving every day. And that's normal and natural. It takes very strong coping skills to combat what you are receiving every day. And that's why they say an individual is a sum of their own parts. You're only as good as the people that you surround yourself with. And if you think that you can be far more influential than the people that you surround yourself with outside of just particular environments. I mean, if you're getting it everywhere from home to work, to school, 
to with friends, to with family, if you're getting that same energy of worry, fear, doubt, negativity, you're not going to be able to combat that. You're not going to be able to overcome that with setting an example. So what you have to do is you have to get into the mode of saying, okay, I got to remove myself to some degree from this energy. I've got to change my environment. I've got to surround myself with different people. Maybe your family, if it's immediate, you can't necessarily change that, but maybe you change some of the friends you hang out with. Maybe you plan your exit strategy from your current job and you move forward to a different job where people are more like-minded and you feel like you're getting more rewarded for your adventurousness if that's the case for you having this worry fear and doubt even though your personality really wants to run and roam free now let's get back to the two different types of placebo pills and let's tie it all together if you're experiencing psychosomatic symptoms right and you are looking to someone who's more like a life coach more like a motivational speaker and by all means i'm not saying that they don't serve a great purpose i think what they do is awesome remember that what they do more so equates to placebo pill number one so maybe your issue is is that it's just your mindset and we know in Cognitive behavioral therapy, change the way you think, change the way you feel, change the way you behave. So maybe a motivational speaker or a life coach can actually instill a more positive mindset and some exercises for you to start engaging in more positive self-talk and positive trajectory from the mind that goes into the heart, that goes into the spirit, which changes your behaviors, and you will get the appropriate results. So in that case, if your symptoms are more psychosomatic, there's nothing clinical going on there, by all means go ahead see a life coach see a motivational speaker i'm sure you will see some changes some positive changes as a matter of fact there are certain motivational speakers that i like to listen to there are certain life coaches that say certain things that i find compelling however okay like i said at the beginning of this podcast if someone's telling you that they have the secrets to cure imposter syndrome if they got that listed in their bio just you don't have to run but you can slowly kind of back away and then turn around and get to the exit <laughs> just saying okay but let's say you are having actual mental or actual medical symptoms you're symptomatic of anxiety or depression then you want to go with placebo pill number two and i would equate this to seeing some licensed clinical professional maybe a licensed clinical social worker maybe a licensed psychologist a licensed psychiatrist maybe you end up going to all three because I can tell you as a licensed clinical social worker what I might do is sort of a preliminary diagnosis with surveying and I might even do some formal assessment but if I think something is really serious that's going on there with my private clients then I will say you know I really want to refer you to this psychologist for a full psychological evaluation or I might say you know I really really recommend you get a full psychological evaluation. Same thing when I'm in the school environment and I have students that I can tell there's some symptoms going on there that are pretty prevailing and it's far beyond just typical therapy, behavior modification, working with modalities that will help them better cope and understand their condition. I feel like, yes, that needs to happen, 
but first we need to get you at a baseline. Usually what I will recommend to the parents is have you talked to your child's pediatrician? Have you ever undergone a full psychological evaluation? Some of them have and I say I would highly suggest and recommend and I'll write in my report especially if I'm doing a triennial report that you get a psychological re-evaluation because we're seeing some symptoms that we didn't see three years ago and we need to go back to the drawing board and figure out what else is going on there. So that would be placebo pill number two. We know something medical and clinical is going on there and we know that this person is symptomatic of something and they could be symptomatic of anxiety, they could be symptomatic of depression, but we need to figure out what it is and we need to treat it. And once we get that person at a certain baseline, then we can do the interventions and the interventions will be far more effective because we've gotten to a baseline where the person is available to pick up those skills that we're going to learn in the therapy and that we're going to exercise. So I thank you all for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. It was a little more clinical, a little more researchy than the last one, but I recommend that you go back and check out the stress episode, check out the episode on distortions, check out the episode and keep tuning in. And I highly recommend that you go back and check out the episode on stress. Check out the episode on distortions because there's a lot of great information where I go into a deep dive and it further explains what we talked about today. Well, thank you for tuning in and until next time, bye-bye.